EcoChimps with Ty. Okay, the Monkey Stew Podcast is back, and we're just going to go ahead and introduce our special guest and everybody at the table right now. Um, obviously, we'll, I should probably start us out with our guest, right? So this is our esteemed energy consultant, Mr. Ty Carper. Hey guys, this is Ty. How's it going? And then we have uh, hosts. As you know, I'm Brantley. And I am Clay. And okay, everybody is here, and we are ready to go. So today's episode is about energy. It's a big topic. Everyone's kind of concerned about it. There's a whole eco-green revolution going on, and Ty is here to dispel a whole lot of uh, myths about the industry and what all's going on. So we got a lot of fun talking points. Um, let's go ahead and get things started. So Tesla is kind of like like the industry buzzword at the moment. Everybody wants a piece of Tesla. Tesla's stock is shot up considerably, and they make beautiful cars. Well, they're so doing a lot of really cool stuff. And Oh, not to mention they open source all the patents, so yeah, it's kind right. of awesome. It's kind of interesting how they've embodied, like, the philosophies of Tesla. Oh, like, the actual Nikola mm-hmm. Tesla. Yeah, right. They, they didn't, I'm really pleased with what they've done. Um, so, bigger news. Uh, they've been in talks with BMW since they've open-sourced uh, to put superchargers throughout most of the United States and even into Europe. That's not... I love BMW. I'm happy that they are finally partnering, yeah. Well, so it almost sounds like BMW's uh, positioning themselves to move into the electric car market. Well, if you look at the i8 and the i3, which is their, like, new kind of green line of cars, they were kind of hybrids. And I'm thinking that if they're able to use the Tesla technology, which looks like they are going to, they could go full-on electric BMWs also, which is really probably a big step in the right direction. If they can match the performance they've gained from uh, Tesla's technology, then... Yeah. That could be really cool. I'm kind of curious when we're going to see the uh, first Indy stock car with an electric vehicle. Uh, pretty soon. Because I know that uh, UTSA yeah. here in San Antonio has been working with that. Uh, my buddy Aaron has actually worked with the uh, the team there, and they've actually produced an electric Indy car. Small scale, but... but yeah, yeah, it's so cool, though. still I, works. I, I know that F1's moving into hybrid uh, slowly but surely, so we'll probably see electric in the next couple of years. So electric cars have uh, had a number of leaps and bounds over the years since Tesla kind of came out and has really started pushing innovation in those sectors. But uh, Volkswagen has been going back to the drawing board with uh, some older tech. Yeah, pretty exciting stuff, actually. So they unleashed a 300-mile-per-gallon car. Yeah, it seems pretty exciting, though, just uh, being able to repurpose the steam and exhaust and uh, utterly cut down fuel consumption through that way. It seems like such a simple solution, but at the same time, it's... uh, well, so for anybody that didn't really catch what Clay said, um, the way they're achieving this... Ooh, there's a Snopes article about it. <laughs> I haven't false. seen that one yet. <laughs> false flag. Oh, yeah, the diesel uh, XL1. Diesel XL1. It's quite the name for a car. It's like, hey, what are we going to call it? Why would the uh, XL, XL1? Okay, why not? Uh, don't tell me, man. I, I can't <coughs> tell what those Germans think. <laughs> Proud of my heritage, but they got some Yeah, Volkswagen ideas. is... Uh, Honestly, huge, it's like, huge manufacturer, yeah. yeah. They, they own like 10 brands now, plus Ducati motorcycles. Well, so, okay, so they've gone the route of doing a hybrid diesel, which is pretty popular now. Diesel is actually a very efficient fuel. However, it's very expensive. Yes. Um, 
But so what they've done is they've incorporated a steam manifold that actually attaches to the car's exhaust manifold, uh, which for any of you who don't know, that's where the exhaust from the combustion cycle just leaves the engine block. Um, but so they're using that as a superheater, which then takes water, converts it into steam, and then injects that into the combustion cylinder and displaces the amount of fuel you need in order to provide power for the power stroke. Really simple, really cool, really effective. And surprisingly yeah. efficient. Yeah. Uh, so they've managed to take their vehicles from, uh, I believe, 30 miles per gallon, 35 miles per gallon is about their average rating. Yeah. Uh, and they've brought it all the way up to estimates of 300 miles per gallon and optimum efficiency. That's incredible stuff. Um, my only question, though, is just coming back to Tesla, is that, you know, Tesla, since they open sourced everything, I'm kind of curious to see how many manufacturers jump on the electric bandwagon now. And we'll see if Volkswagen is kind of, a, you know, a one-off, if you will. And Tesla is the one that kind of, becomes the industry standard. Well, so check this out. Apparently, the, uh, electric instead. I don't know. the Volkswagen has a 800cc engine with a two-cylinder turbo diesel. Wow. Thing's basically a go-kart. Yeah. <laughs> that's impressive, though. But it uh, can travel for 35 kilometers or 22 miles on electric power alone. So wow. it, is, it is actually an electric hybrid. Yeah. Um, but it can be charged from a domestic plug. You don't actually have to retrofit your house with anything special. But if they were to adapt the Tesla supercharger technology, yeah, I right. mean... Yeah, it seems like the Tesla supercharger, like before we, there, there's already supercharging stations popping up all on the East Coast and West Coast, so it'll just be a matter of time until they're everywhere. I think it has more to do with they're looking to eliminate uh, city emissions, and the efficiencies are really beneficial for highway, uh, especially in Germany with the Autobahn and how they do everything there. I mean, it really makes sense that they would go that direction. But, I mean, if you could eliminate most of the pollution going on in the cities, I think that would actually make things a whole lot better. Because anything, I mean, think yeah, about it could it. be. Yeah, there have been a number of car talk forum talks about uh, how you can better your efficiency by lowering your idle, so that way when you're in standing traffic, you know you're not wasting too much fuel. Um, you run the problem of running it too low and then stalling out when the engine heats up. Or yeah, anything like that. But, it actually uh, is a common problem in like most traffic jams. Yeah, you, so you see a lot of people have. That. People theorize that a lot of the carbon emission is just you know standing traffic, kind of a problem. It's not yeah, efficient. Right, burns a lot of fuel. Making progress. <laughs> yeah, definitely speaking. So, really quick, let's transition into the Toyota 2015 plan, because this kind of conversely, Toyota, Toyota 2015, for those of you who don't know, they came up with this bright idea to convert a line, a one line of, you know, Toyota's a huge manufacturer, into purely hydrogen fuel cell cars uh, for 2015. Is I it think gonna be the Camry? It's it's only gonna be like yeah, like one model. And I think it's called the uh, fuel stack something. Because they're using a hydrogen fuel stack right. in the car. The problem I see with hydrogen is, you know, if you have a Tesla, you can go home and plug in your car because your house has electricity. If you want to plug in your hydrogen car, you have to make sure that there's, you know, the infrastructure in place so that you can do that. Right. So I see electric being a little more popular with most people because you don't have to worry, you know, does my city have the, the infrastructure I need in order to drive my car? You say no. I'll go home, and if you want to be, you know, completely green, you can set up a solar panel, charge your car. Yeah, it's a great idea. Well, you also see it, too, because you have the Nissan Leaf, the Chevy Volt, and now Tesla. So, obviously, electricity has been picked up a lot faster by the bigger mm-hmm. industry, right? Fuel cell has been a bigger push, right? So, Toyota basically had to go out on their own and say, we are building these fuel cells, whether you like it or not. So, it seems like electricity definitely got the leg up in that regard. But I'm still interested to see what happens with fuel cell technology, seeing if it really doesn't become that much of a viable alternative, right? 
What's Do that? we know how fast those the Tesla supercharging stations actually charged a car? Because I was reading... Well, so it's twofold. Uh, one, they're going to plan to have interchangeable batteries. So okay. you can oh, either choose to stay there. So basically, while it's in standby, it'll be charging a cell. Uh, this cell will be transferred from one vehicle to the other. Uh, it doesn't really matter. I'm kind of curious how the warranty works out on that. I think it's just for the lifetime of the battery itself. Yeah. I know they offer a warranty for the battery when you're purchasing a Tesla currently. Yeah. Because they... So after so many years, you know, like your iPhone, it stops charging as well. Mm -hmm. Sure. But yeah, so there's a standby station where it actually charges a cell, and then the next person comes along, they can just plug in and play. Or, if you're willing to wait the 15 to 20 minutes it takes to charge your vehicle, it will charge your vehicle to full capacity in, I believe, 10 to 15 minutes? Yeah, it's in in that range. Yeah, Something like that. So, I mean, for the time it would take you to go into a gas station and go do whatever you're going to do. Seriously, I, I, I think I see that being much a better thing because I see most people are going to go home after work. They're going to plug in their car, and they're honestly never going to think about even having to go having to go to a charging station because you know why would I let my car run down when I can just plug it in at night? So you guys hear about the guy who had just bought the model, uh, the Tesla Model S, right? Brand new, had the extended battery. He drove from New York. Uh, this is like few months ago now, he drove from New York to Florida in one false swoop. Mm-hmm. Just no problem. And apparently there are like multiple charging stations. Of course, they're like the original ones, but they're in place to allow him to travel the, you know, to 2,500 miles, whatever that is. Like, no problem. So, it's, I think the Tesla stations are going to be most important for like road trips, right? Mm-hmm. But for like your normal day-to-day commuting, right? You just, yeah, really, like you said, go home yeah. and charge it. No problem. Well, like, if you're on your way home and, like, you just happen to see that, you know, your cell's low or whatever, I mean, you can just go hot swap it and be on or your way. You, or you could totally do that. That's the other thing, too. I think Tesla's, if, if you get the extended battery, they have, they can go for, like, 400 miles on, like, one charge. So it's not a big deal, like, especially if you're just going to be going around town. Yeah. It's so. like filling your car up with a full tank of gas. Seriously. Like, and then I, doing it every time you go home at night as well. Well, actually, you wouldn't even have to do that because if you're just going to travel, let's say, an average of like 20 miles a day, you could theoretically go for like a week on only yeah, one but, charge. You, know, you yeah. might as well just plug her in when you get home. Well, yeah, but you totally have the option to. Yeah. yeah. I think that's going to involve people cleaning out the garages and be able to store their vehicle there. <laughs> I mean, if I can't store it in the car, if I can't store it in the garage, yeah, and I don't have the power plug right there, out of sight, out of mind. Right, I mean, it's really going to screw me over the next morning when I can't start my car. Yeah, definitely. But so it, that, in some ways, though, it gives the alternative to pull out you know the old photo albums and you know clean out the garage finally and <laughs> just throw out a bunch of trash. Well, so back to the hydrogen thing. Um, I'm curious, and a lot of people have been questioning the uh, safety of such, because hydrogen, as we know, is the reason the Hindenburg kind of was a colossal fiasco. (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) Yes. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, people question whether or not hydrogen fuel cells are really all that safe, how safe are they to store, I mean, what are nominal temperatures for that kind of thing, can I just keep it in my garage without it exploding? Yeah, yeah. I, that's another thing. It's like, how <sighs> safe are these vehicles in impact collisions with a hydrogen bomb? Well, yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> now, I, I don't necessarily think that they are as reactive as a hydrogen bomb because you know I think they are actually a uh, substrate fuel cell, not just a open air. You know. Yeah. So I just got to combust on you, right? So I don't think that's as, I don't think that's as big of a problem. It's the same kind of thing with uh, overcharging um, lead acid batteries. Eventually, the uh, casing's going to wear out. Well, not the casing's going to wear out, but the uh, lead plates react with the acid and ultimately cause salts. Mm-hmm. And those salts eventually react with the acid and basically produce hydrogen. And it gets superheated and blows up. Well, the first spark, which is normally whenever <laughs> you connect a live end to the battery terminal. Yeah, and then. Yeah, that's how people get burned with those things. Yeah, because yeah, the batteries blow up and their phones. Yeah, it's just like. 
Not God. their phones. I'm talking about car less, like 12 volt car. Oh, I, yeah, I know, but it's been known to happen with phones. Um, but yeah, I know what you mean. And cars definitely. Yeah. It's much bigger concern. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's the same reason why you shouldn't let your uh, terminals corrode in your vehicle. <laughs> it's a sign of overcharging. Oh, okay. So I mean, that could be a faulty yeah, or something like that. Oh. Man, so like people are so you know concerned about fuel cells and stuff. When you have you know a battery in your car already, right, that could you know blow up as well. It's kind of I don't know. It's I think it's a much uh, the lesser two evils. Ultimately. Well, so it also yeah. lends credence. To, so we've had a very proud heritage of you know working on our own cars and actually like getting down and oh know, yeah, monkey in the, the American way. Yeah. You know, weekend warrior type things. But uh, with a lot of these technologies coming out, uh, lithium ion, hydrogen fuel cells. I mean, the average. You know, at home individual can't necessarily work on that technology in their, you know, their garage. Yeah, it's becoming less and less mechanical expertise, and it's becoming a software expertise because our cars well, are becoming basically computers. Yeah, yeah, but computers. at the same time, you also have to have some sort of chemical engineering well, background to really yeah, understand yeah, yeah. what the tolerances are for these technologies are. <laughs> Just blowing up the batteries. <laughs> well, so I think it, it it's twofold. One, you're going to get a lot of people that don't know how to work on cars. Because you're still going to need to do, you know, brakes. You're still going to need to do tire rotations, all yeah. that stuff. You still need yeah. to know how to do all that stuff. And that's really basic things that I think everyone learns when they own a vehicle. Two, I think it's going to lead to a more educated generation because they're just going to be like, well, I don't know how this works. So I'm going to figure it out. Let's Google it. Yeah, I'm going to figure it out. Right. That's the nice thing about our generation just as a whole is that we have these nice resources to go and figure things out. And maybe we can become Tesla certified, you know, grease monkey mechanics. Who knows? That would be awesome. <laughs> just like, you know, go to Google, how to become Tesla mechanic. <laughs> but yeah, so let's just go ahead and move forward a bit. Uh, so liquid natural gas alternative is something we haven't talked about yet. This is uh, a potentially big game changer, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So the pa- I mean, I don't know how closely you've been following the energy uh, marketplace, but in the past few years we've had an explosion of shale gas and shale oil which is, you know, directly a result of horizontal fracking and horizontal drilling. And as a result, gas prices, liquid natural gas prices, are all very, very down. Um, There's a company, Chesapeake, that got burned pretty bad because they went and bought up a bunch of gas acreage, thinking the price was going to increase. And then we had that shell revolution, and now they're, uh, you know, kind of stumbling backwards and trying to take their losses. But potentially as a fuel, you know, you can easily outfit a car that already runs on gas or diesel to run liquefied natural gas or compressed natural gas. It's an easy thing to do. We already have not a great, but we do have a, a network of charging stations, and, you know, it burns cleaner. So I see it being a good alternative to electric cars. Yeah, in the future. It well, could. so what are the efficiencies of liquid natural gas versus standard uh, diesel and gasoline? Um, you know, I really am not sure how many BTUs of natural gas compare to gasoline as far as get, getting you moving. Um, I know it does pretty well. I, I, I wish I knew some, some numbers off the top of my head, but the big thing is that it's much, much cleaner. Right. So that's kind of the big uh, the big benefit, and I think... That's part of uh, T. Boone Pickens has been what he calls the Pickens plan, and he wants to Very transition yeah. <laughs> the U.S. from gasoline to liquefied natural gas to wind energy to nuclear is kind of what he said as his overarching plan. Um, Interesting. The big, th- the big thing I like about natural gas is it's cheap, and it would free up our transportation sector from, be- from using gasoline, and we could use that gasoline and those petrochemicals for other things, because I mean, if you look around, any anyone who's in a room right now, 
if you look around, you are surrounded by petroleum products. All the plastics, totally. you know, yeah. everything is. So if we were using less for transportation, you know, we're going to have a lot more to use for other things that we also need and that are equally important to us. Basically, our reliance on oil is much deeper than what meets the eye, right? Because it, Yeah, it's, it's not just cars and it's not just like, you know, like emissions, right? Because there's a lot more products that get made Well, for me personally, it yeah. kind of explains why we buy so many barrels of crude oil. Yeah, totally. Like on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we're, we're actually, with the shale revolution, we are the net exporter now, which is oh, interesting. Neat. And it's been causing a lot of debate because we're not allowed to ship or, or uh, trade crude oil currently. It has to be already refined in some way. So we can't just ship out our crude and sell it to, you know, the Ukraine or someone. We have to, you know, refine it, make it gasoline, and then sell it. So there's been a big push. Can't give them the ability to process their own material. Yeah, yeah. So there's been a big push by, obviously, conservative oil companies to allow us to start exporting our own crude oil. Oh, interesting. So what are the economical gains for that? Are there... Um, you know, depending on who you ask, less reliance on foreign oil. Um, sure. We're always going to do that, though, because, you know, it's a global economy. You know, you can't just say, I'm an isolationist. I'm just going to use my, <laughs> my oil. Not Sit on my own answers. little island. <laughs> but on the flip side of that, obviously, it would be a big boon for our economy. It would give a lot of people jobs. It would help people a lot. But there's other people who question, should we be selling this oil and this gas when we might need it in the future if there is some kind of embargo, if there is some kind of war. So it comes down to, you know, kind of a security versus a prosperity kind of thing. Mm. Wow. So there's a lot of, like, interesting implications to that. Moving just a little bit kind of into liquid natural gas. So we talked a little bit about horizontal drilling, but the big buzzword right now, everybody's talking about is fracking, obviously. Fracking, Fr- fracking is, like, a lot of, a lot of Greenpeace people, a lot of... Uh, a lot of the media in general, too, is very quick to demonize it. It's like this horrible word. So, yeah. it's Fracking has gotten a very bad rep. And honestly, this is going to be very controversial, but fracking is a good thing. We've been fracking in the U.S. since about the 60s. And let me basically explain what, ha- what fracking is. So you go down and you drill your horizontal drill or your horizontal pipe. You go down there and you have shale surrounding you. And that's very tight, very per- very uh, small permeability and small porosity. So what you do is you inject this mud slurry kind of mixture in there at high pressures. And then you fill up all the gaps. And then you do little uh, shaped charges, basically, into the ground that explode outwards. outwards. And then that uh, slurry of mud goes in, fills up all the cracks, and kind of holds them there. Then you go in and you inject what's called a prop in, which is usually little small kind of rubber beads of some kind, something that will hold open those cracks. Inject that in behind the fluid, and that goes in there and pops open those cracks so that the oil and the gas can flow from pore to pore and eventually come into your well bore. And then you suck it up, produce it, sell it, make a lot of money. Nice and good, right? Right. So people get upset with fracking because they say it contaminates the water table, which is a very, very viable concern. Water is very important to us. The thing most people don't realize is that when you're horizontally drilling or you're fracking even in a straight well, you're doing that at a depth of about ten to 18,000 feet, depending on what you're looking for. Well below the water table. Well, well below the water. So the water table's up. It varies, but, you know, 500 to 1,000 feet would be deep. Yeah. The thing that happens is when you're bringing that fracking fluid out, it obviously has to pass through that water table as it comes out. Right. And what they do is they case the sides with a cement brick that 
you know, is ideally supposed to stop the fracking fluid from seeping into the table. If you do it right, it works great, there's no problems. If you have a less than reputable company come in there and maybe they fuck up the casing, yeah, you're in trouble. you have problems because then your fracking fluid leaks in. It's not good stuff. It's chemicals that is made to literally dissolve rock. So you do not want to drink it. Yeah. And then beyond that, you have companies where after you have pulled all the fracking fluid out, you have to dispose of that in a way that costs money that is expensive. Uh, so you have some companies who will just dump the water, dump the fracking fluid. Completely irresponsible. Yeah. Completely irresponsible. And yeah, that's that's the big problem. It's not fracking itself. It's making sure that when you do frack, you frack well. And when you finish fracking, you clean up your mess. Yeah. So it has more to do with ethics than it does anything else. Absolutely. And, you know, people see these companies as evil monsters. But at the end of the, at the, end of the day, they're, they're supplying you with the goods that you're demanding. Yeah, absolutely. And if we don't they have serve frack, a yeah. You're not going to be able to drive your car downtown and go hang out with your friends because gas is going to be six. Prohibitively seven. expensive. Yeah. yeah. And that's when you go to the freaking uh, Capital Metro Rail. <laughs> I, I like Capital Metro. I like the rail. And it yes, only, nobody rides it. <laughs> and it only runs till what, 10 p.m.? Yeah, and I think that's one of the bigger problems is that the network's limited and the hours aren't good for any Austinite listeners on the show right now. Um, wait, so. Like, I, I just kind of regarding fracking again for a minute. There's that guy who lit his water on fire, and right because he's like, "Look at what fracking's done to my water." And he turned on his water. He got it was a big news story. Well, blew, hold up, I think I read a Snopes article about that. And yeah, I think, they, I think they determined it was false. Did they? Okay, good because I was like, "This guy's clearly you know an, an attention whore. He wants the limelight, right?" Yeah. So. Right. Yeah, but so so there's a lot of benefits to fracking at the end of the day. You just need to make sure you dispose of the waste in an ethical yeah, manner. Fracking but, itself right. is not really a bad thing. It's making sure that you frack in a responsible way. It's like, yeah. you know, nuclear reactors, for example, could be potentially very dangerous. But if you do it correctly, it's very, very good. Yeah. So it, it it's obviously a gray issue. It's something we need to regulate and need to make sure we focus on. But it's not something that we should say, no, no, no. No more fracking, never again, because fracking is what's enabled our revolution in U.S. energy that we're experiencing. Fracking is the reason why we are now a net exporter. Well, so I think a number of people have problems with uh, some of the immediate environmental aspects, which is where they, you know, they had to clear-cut a certain amount of land in order mm-hmm. to set up their site. Uh, the site management they do beyond that is not really well done. A lot of it's just dirt roads, and that causes uh, runoff problems. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's there's a whole... A bunch of stuff that goes into it, like you have to have civil engineers to come along and they actually have to do eco-engineering and then all that stuff. And when you establish these sites, I think people have problems with the fact that it destroys the natural environment that's above the ground. Like, I think I think a lot of people have concerns with that because they see the aftermath pictures of a lot of those sites. <laughs> and they just I look mean, awful. Anyone who's been on an active rig, you know, there's, there's pools of dirty water, um, everything's leveled, you know, shitty ground dirt, um, clears are, trees are cleared. Um, it's definitely not a pretty site. The thing I will say is that with horizontal drilling, our impact is becoming less and less because when you have a horizontal drill, say we were drilling up maybe in Alaska. We're drilling in you know beautiful caribou land. Um, we don't want to hurt these poor caribou, of course. No, So you can plant actually a very small drill site, still damaging, I, I will give you that, but that horizontal drill will go down and extend for miles and miles across the land and, you know, access oil and gas, instead of going straight down at varying intervals, you can get 
all that oil and gas coming straight to you without affecting the surface, except for in that one small area. I drink your milkshake. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Just bring them out. It comes down to the rule of capture. You know, if you capture the oil and bring it to your well bore, you own that oil. Yeah, you made the profit. There's a whole other debate about minimal rights and (laughs) all that nonsense, and I'm sure the legal aspect of that has already been covered. Okay, so we were about to get into the topic. I'm just going to go ahead and do it. So, nuclear energy is kind of the other big alternative we haven't talked about yet. Well, so nuclear has been kind of a hot topic yeah. ever since the, uh... The well, Fukushima. Yeah. No, no, longer ago than that, dude. The atomic bomb. Oh, well, yeah. yeah, yeah way sure. back in the 40s. Sure, sure. Uh, Originally. Also, all the sci-fi stuff that came out back in the early 1900s. <laughs> Invasion of the Crab People, dude. Come no, no, on. that wasn't nuclear. I'm talking like... <laughs> Godzilla. Talking radioactive monsters, Godzilla. Yeah, like, Godzilla. Oh, Definitely. man. Terrors of the nuclear revolution. Sure. Um, Why it happened on the Japanese coast? <laughs> the atom bomb. Man. And I mean, it's it's interesting to hear the the duality of it because you got everyone on one side who's just like, oh yeah, it's very clean, it's efficient, it's very safe, and you know, it, it produces quite a bit of energy for what you put in. Whereas on the other side, it's like, look at all the damage it's done. Look, it's right. radiating our children and our yeah. water supplies, and you know, it, it, my kid grew a third arm. <laughs> So, so, I mean, the earthquake came in, man, and the reactors burnt down, and now we're all mutants. <laughs> well, okay, so there's a whole lot of things we can talk about with this, and I think one of the bigger things is sort of the positives. Um, or actually, sorry, let's start with a couple negatives. Okay, so Fuku- uh, Fukushima, a few years ago, earthquake in Japan, yeah. uh, offshore of Japan. Right, it didn't even have to happen on land. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so the aftershock actually caused a breach in the... Uh, the radiation reservoir. Yes. Where the uh, fuel cells. The fuel cells. Is it uranium or plutonium based? I'm not sure about Fukushima. I want to say it was uranium. But I think it is uranium based. I could be wrong. Um, but so that's definitely co- a slightly older reactor. Yeah, yeah. So what ended up happening is the uh, the cooling reservoir fractured, drained, and the problem with that is that leads to a meltdown. Effectively, what happens is the fusion reaction is so it produces so much heat and so much energy. If you don't know already, a nuclear reactor is nothing more than one giant steam engine or generator. Uh, it basically uses a uh, uh, a well, radioactive radio- isotopes. Radioactive isotopes yeah, yeah, to right. superheat water into steam, which turns turbines and then thus is converted into energy. Um, it's very efficient. It's very clean. It's very effective. But the problem is when you have situations that do go wrong, they do go wrong. <laughs> uh, so Fukushima, the earthquake uh, fractured the reservoir. The reservoir drained, and consequently, the fuel cell overheated and meltdown. Yeah, now it's polluting ensued. everything, which is kind of the fallout. Well, so yeah. the problem is the whenever whenever people talk about radioactive nuclear waste, uh, what they're really talking about is all the radiated water that was used as coolant. Uh, so what we end up having to do is whenever we do cycle that out, because, you know, water has a thermal capacity, and when you reach that, then you got to drain it and then flush in new water so that you can actually, you know, maintain the cooling aspect. That water has to go somewhere because it's been radiated. Uh, so we end up having a lot of radiated water that uh, is being stored in these silos until, you know, eventually reaches that half-life where it can be safely disposed of. All of that got rushed into the ocean. Uh, there was no real recoup from it. Um, Whenever they finally, the Japan, the Japanese government really kind of handled it poorly. I think. Yeah. Um, well, is that the the yakuza was the main beneficiary to come in after the reactor belted down in 2011, and they actually came in in I think 2012 after the government proved incapable, and yeah, the yakuza were the ones who actually headed the cleanup process. Yeah. Well, so crazy. Um, anyway, several years after the fact, there's been a number of people reporting that you know this. W- 
massive plume of nuclear radiation is going to hit the west coast of the United States here in like you know the next six months. There's like a countdown yes. timer on a couple websites. Um, Fiasco. And Chaos. Everyone's concerned about you know the local fishing supplies. Uh, it's kind of the same thing anytime like a crude oil spill happens. It's like you know you don't want to eat the local wildlife. Uh, it kind of affects a lot of industries, mostly shipping and fishing, mm-hmm. um, especially since you know Fukushima is actually a pretty big fishing import. I understand. Whenever that kind of stuff happens, and yeah, you obviously don't want to eat the fish. You want to kind of move back. You want to take out any potential threats, right? That kind of come in with that. Well, you want to keep an eye on it. Um, yeah. Right now, it's come down to monitoring. Uh, and that's kind of an interesting thing to look at is uh, everyone who's monitoring this plume of radiation is concerned that, you know, it hits the West Coast, and then what does it do? It, is it going to radiate everything? Is it going to, you know... Our children! People? Think about the children! <laughs> I mean, it has any number of effects, and the problem is it's all hyperbole. No one really knows what's going to go on. It's all theoretical, hypothetical bullshit. And right. Until we actually see any negative consequences, I really don't think anyone's going to have anything to, you know, back it up with. Um... Also, I can't find any concrete evidence as to... I, I, I tried to do the calculations as to, like, how radioactive this stuff is mm-hmm. and how much radiation it takes to actually negatively impact someone to the point where you have mutations. Yeah, man. You know, it, it's a lot, by the way. Like, it's like a lot, a lot. Like, I, I'm pretty sure the fallout from this is going to be minimal. Yeah, and see, so, I, can't, yeah. I can't really find any... I, all the reports I've read have said that the surrounding area... The radiation they're experiencing is, it's it sounds substantial if you say the number out loud, but in regards to what you actually take in daily as far as radiation, mm-hmm. it's not negative. It's not going to hurt you. Yeah, I mean, that's... Because on... everything around you, you know, is radiated. You're yeah. always getting radiation. It's actually a great infographic that somebody made. Um, I saw that on the yeah, site, yeah, we, yeah, we should probably put that up on the site after yeah, this we'll show. put it up on the, where it shows the little blue... Yes. You know, so yeah. many blue pills to get one yellow pill. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, and, I mean, and Shame has a very small blue pill. Yeah, yeah I, I really don't think that kind of relays the information. Because well, what I'm trying to figure out is, like, how much radiation do I take in on a daily? And then how much radiation is this plume going to basically bombard the coast with? Like, uh, when, you, when, you, when you go to, like, the doctor's office for an x-ray, that's, like, several, several, maybe 100 times more radiation. Yeah, but that's radiation. a snapshot. That's, like, a that very is. minute exposure time. Right. With this plume of radiation, it's basically just, like, a waft of radiation. It's just going to, like, <laughs> just coat the West the air, Coast. Yeah. And everyone's concerned that, like, the long-term effects of it are going to be, like, you know, the fish populations develop, you know, thicker skin and extra gills, and they start walking on land. Yeah, creatures and in the black Forces lagoon. back yeah. into the ocean. <laughs> dolphins take over. And make fishing easier if they walk on Yeah, mu- dude, mutated dolphins, man. <laughs> Enslaved the human race. I'm pretty sure at that point spears are going to be the next big thing yeah, in hunting. Yeah. <laughs> Monkey frog fish. <laughs> Monkey frog. That'd be kind of cool. So, all right, oh, there's a lot of potential negatives from nuclear, especially if it's, if it's done you know, irresponsibly. Well, if anything, it could lead to Godzilla. But, <laughs> but, but so I think there's a positive note, if anything, right? We need a Godzilla. But So let's talk about this, this Taylor Wilson kid really quick. So there are definitely positives also to come out of the nuclear expansion. So Taylor Wilson yeah. is a, uh, he's a child prodigy in the nuclear space. Um, he was, I believe, 14 or 15 whenever he got initially interested in nuclear... Uh, anyways, it, it led him down the path to basically he wanted to build a fusion reactor in his garage. And he got pretty close. Um, it wasn't until his parents realized that, you know, he could potentially blow up the house that uh, they decided to, you know, help him out. And he actually sent off a number of uh, requests to a number of universities, and he's been working with universities. And then he got investigated by the FBI. Eh. Yes, I, I, it really did happen. I, I, I don't know. I, I haven't read that officially. Well, um, I, but I think the FBI, yeah. I think he did mention in a TED Talk that he had uh, that the FBI did come talk to him about stuff. And 
I I don't know. Our 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 national security program is weird. <laughs> Just as far as like a if kid. they're gonna look at yeah. anyone though, I would I feel okay with them looking at the guy making the nuke. You know, it's a reactor. It's not. It wasn't a nuke. It was a reactor. Well, okay, but yeah. better, it has the potential to go nuke. It has the potential to go nuclear. But um, <laughs> anyway, so this kid has made strides in the world of nuclear. Uh, reactors and all sorts of other things like that. But one of his biggest contributions has been to the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, he made a, I, I think, it like for the cost of a few dollars, they can manufacture these testing probes that basically monitor for nuclear radiation fields. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, is that we've been monitoring a lot of our imports uh, at our harbors and all sorts of other places using these very sophisticated and expensive technologies. He came along and made this whole thing, and it, it worked really efficiently. And now that's replaced our security measures for, you know, monitoring shipping cargo and all that stuff. So, I mean, he made a positive impact on that particular aspect of our homeland security. And I, th- I think that's kind of led him into a number of different avenues because now he actually has proven himself effective in this field. Yes. Yeah, so, so, yeah, kind of going off that, let's talk really quick about this Africa incentive uh, because, like, or, or third world country uh, providing cheap nuclear alternatives, right? Well, so that's the next thing he's working So yeah, he was around right. 14 or 15, so somewhere in there. Uh, he was really young uh, whenever he came up with the, uh, the nuclear radiation probe. What he's working on now, he's 19, going on 20, I think. Might already be that way. Uh, But he's working on a series of micronuclear plants. Uh, His concept being that, you know, after the Cold War, we had these nuclear arms stored for however long, and he theorizes that the half-life of such has led them to degrade to the point where they're no longer weapons-grade uranium or plutonium. So it's just like you have all this radiated material that could be totally used in a nuclear fashion, to generate electricity, and what we can do is, since they're in such small modules, we could actually go ahead and make micro plants that people can then take, and then your neighborhood could technically file for one, go ahead and plant it in the ground, and then be able to power your entire neighborhood. Effectively, what you're doing is you're building a series or a network of microgrids that you're no longer having to rely on the city for power. Yeah, so very promising stuff. It's very promising, yeah, and the cool thing is like. Potential. Yeah, so these uh, these nuclear cells, what they're talking about is you just go ahead and bury it like 30 feet down below. It's encased in a proper housing um, so that whenever the uh, the nuclear half-life is to the point where it no longer produces an efficient you know, energy curve, you can just bury the capsule and it's safe. And it's, it seems so cut and dry and so nice. But like, and it is. And yeah, the, right. The only, um, the only downsides to it is basically the funding and the... Uh, the adoption rate. It sounds like he's probably going to get the funding. And, and the adoption rate, once, you know, in a impoverished country, here is that they now have access to electricity on a yeah. regular basis. That so, seems I mean, like um, no problem. Yeah. It, it's a far more efficient solution than, uh, than solar. And the other cool thing is that it's a way better solution than having to <laughs> implant a lot of these, uh, these wind turbines and all a bunch of other stuff. And granted, those fields are making strides, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But think about it this way. Having a microplant that you can just go ahead and install per community instead of having to have this massive nuclear facility. Or even just a massive energy grid in general that you have to rely off of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I yeah. really think going small here actually is beneficial because, one, it prevents situations like Fukushima where it's like this massive plant. Right. Um, and you have, you're having to go in and security checks and infrastructure. and having to, If you're running off of a small container, it's roughly like the size of, you know, uh, I would say like a zorb. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> let, let, let's say it's the size of a zorb. Um, I, I, I like that better, personally. Yeah. 
Well, in a lot of ways, it makes sense. So, um, do they have to deal with the nuclear waste that is coming out of this thing, or how does that? No, work? that's the thing. Is like so once the because it's not such a large facility, they're not having to change out the nuclear uh, material. Mm -hmm. So, what they can basically do is just go ahead and contain it inside of its own storage vessel, and okay. then bury it. 30 feet underground. Where it's already so it's a one-time use. It's, it's a one-time use. Okay. But you get like 30 years out of it. Yeah. That, that, it that seems like good. an interesting trade-off, yeah. Right. I, I really think it's a really cool idea, and the fact is we keep, you know, we we had this entire nuclear arms store, and it just doesn't make sense for it to just sit there and not be beneficial. Yeah, totally. So moving kind of same same deal, France has a rather reputable uh, nuclear power plant, doesn't it? Yeah, I actually got the, uh, the chance this summer to go out there and visit. Um... Having trouble remembering the name of the actual plant, but um, it was really cool to see. It had you know the the classic big towers, smokestacks with you know all the the um, water molecules coming out of it and everything. You know it's not pollution; it's just water vapor, steam, steam. Yeah, and uh, it was interesting to see, especially the security they had. We went in a room, changed all our clothes, took away all our phones. We got all this special radiation gear um they had three or four checkpoints throughout so you know people will get nervous about nuclear because they're worried that it's going to be weaponized it's gonna you know terrorists are going to take over the plant and melt it down something like that but with the security measures they have in place even without security around the place you know i don't think some schmuck off the street some terrorist is going to be able to come in there and actually start a meltdown override all the computers all the technology they have and then, you know, not even that, they have tons and tons of security, military people. The biggest problem with nuclear that I see is financing and that people don't understand it and they just want to run away from it. So there's going to be a pretty significant educational curve. Absolutely. It's just get, yeah, getting people on board. And, and then France is also using three-stage reactors. I think most all of ours in the U.S. are two-stage. So basically they have a line of water, a coil of water, I guess, that goes, heats up another coil of water that then heats up the actual water that boils and turns the, uh, the turbine. So they've kind of advanced a little bit beyond the technology that we're currently using in there. They're setting up plants that are putting out tons and tons of energy. I think 60 or 70% of France um, gets their energy from nuclear, and I think wow. that number is going to continue to increase. Yeah, good. yeah, actually, that does sound pretty promising. Also, regarding the, uh, the security concerns, so... Back a few years ago, the uh, United States government was accused of uh, implanting a virus in Iran's power plants. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, conspiracy theories aside, I mean, it's a significant concern to think that, you know, you can just breach someone's network like that and take control of a nuclear power plant. But as far as, like, power plant network security, uh, we, you've talked about how, like, their infrastructure is set up and, like, they have security checkpoints and all that good stuff. Like, from a network management perspective, I mean, how technologically advanced is this compared to other facilities it looked it was pretty advanced we got to see a model control room because when they bring in new employees they basically train them for about a year and a year and a half in this simulation control room like you would have in the, in the main part of the reactor and it looked you know out of like a like a 1970s like military film almost you have you know flashing lights control panels i think they keep the technology kind of how they do with airplanes where this works, we know it works, we're going to keep using this, there's no need to upgrade to some fancy new thing because what we got works. So I think their goal is going to be to try and, you know, keep it simple, stupid, you know, use what we know works, have fallbacks that we can use, you know, and that we know work. So I don't see them using a bunch of fancy new 
technology and, and their plans. Interesting. So if it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it mentality. And, yeah. and they're totally... Actually, in some ways, that's the way to do it because if they don't really update too much, then they're going to have a whole lot of potential security concerns that go along with that, like for like DDoS and network potential attacks. It's determined by how robust their firewall is. So, I mean, like, I really don't know what their network capabilities are or whether or not yeah. that's even a factor. Um, they could totally be working off an isolated network. They probably are. You know, If it's going to be like that big of a concern, then why not? And so all kinds of stuff. So... We got this notion of thorium coming up as a big time viable, you know, like kind of a kind of a crapshoot, but at the same time, it seems really like a cool idea. At the same time, I think that Bill Gates was actually the one who originally came up, like him and like a Microsoft, you know, secret team came up with this like thorium reactor alternative, and then uh, more recently, uh, China has been uh, hugely funding thorium research too, and it, it just seems like. Thorium has like is virtually no waste. It's really renewable. Uh, the problem, of course, is like any sort of traditional plant, right? It superheats, and the salt content erodes any sort of metal barricade you put, and so the potential of it melting down is quite high because it becomes unstable, right? Yeah, I so, think the nice thing about thorium is that it can't be weaponized, and that yes. settles peace of mind for a lot of people. You know, you have these, you know, average American who maybe doesn't know much about this kind of technology. So they know, hey, can't make a bomb out of this. I feel a little bit safer. So, so kinda... Yeah, so in some ways Thorium kind of puts that fear aside. Well, so is that yeah. that chemically you cannot weaponize it or just we have I to just, figure out I, a process for it? I don't think you can weaponize it. I have to go back and, you know, do a little research, I guess, and figure it out. But as everything I've heard, the big reason why it's popular is because you can't weaponize it, and maybe you can use its its waste as additional fuel, but I'm not 100% sure on that last point. So this is a synthetic uh, a synthetic compound, right? No, thorium's definitely an element. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, and uh, it, it's used similar to plutonium and uranium. The only difference is that uh, it's similar as a radioactive isotope. The only difference is it doesn't have the same kind of byproduct and same uh, half-life, you know, like U-235 uranium does. So it's a little bit more stable than most of the other compounds. Okay. Yeah. But the the issue, though, is is, um, at least my understanding of it is it becomes superheated, and at that point it becomes, like, hyper-corrosive to the point to where they don't know how to contain it properly, like, under those uh, super temperatures it takes to actually produce viable energy. This is when the petrol industry comes along and invents a new plastic that can shield it. Oh, my God. There you go. Uh, who knows? Who knows what will happen with that? But at the same time, though, it's getting a lot of money thrown at it. So I'm remaining pretty optimistic as far as like uh, thorium as a future energy source. You mentioned earlier that China's kind of throwing their money at it. Yes, big time. Uh, so like, so between uh, you know Bill Gates' personal interest, uh, so he can practically self-fund it, and then obviously have a, you know an entire nation now that's equally interested because they have an energy crisis. Uh, yeah, it seems like it has a. A lot going on. In other news, uh, Germany is going solar? Yeah. Germany, uh, they've been shying away from nuclear lately. They've been trying to go purely renewable. Um, They have that green image, I guess. As far as I know, they've been doing a pretty good job of getting their solar up. I think they had like one or two days a couple months ago where it was like 50 or 60 percent of their energy came from solar only one only one day they you know a particularly sunny day but that's still really good and then i'm not sure i'm sure they buy some of their energy from france buying some of their nuclear energy and then i suspect they also might buy some wind from denmark because i know denmark exports a good deal of its wind energy 
We'll see how it pans out for Germany. I'm not a huge fan of solar. It's a little, doesn't have the, uh, the density that you need for a really strong energy source, you know, and it, it, it's intermittent, only works when the sun shines. Uh, I definitely lean towards wind as being well, the renewable. So there's a, there's a rising trend in the United States about uh, solar where people are using it to subsidize a lot of their own, you know, their home costs. Yeah, it's for energy. Big time. Uh, yeah. Specifically with uh, heating and cooling. Um, they're using a lot of these uh, backup cells to kind of offset their grid use. Yeah, there's actually been a, a number of people just um, around here who have um, not only put their own like solar array on their roofs, but they also have turned and resold energy back to um, back to the city. Well, the city's got like a buyback program. Yeah, right. And, and, and but through that though, they actually end up making uh, money off of their electric use, which is kind of crazy. Well, they end up. Again, they offset. I mean, they oh, use offset, the money that sure. they it, basically like you get a. I think you get a credit for your energy use from the city. So, I mean, like for your your water heater and all that other stuff. But still, like it, it just kind of I, I think that we're getting to that point. And this is gonna sound a little futuristicy, but like we're, we're you know kids always budget, right? It's like you know you're gonna go out, you're gonna get your first place, you're going to you know figure out water and electric costs and things like that, and just figure out how much you have to pay, right, on a monthly basis. Well, pretty soon we get to the point to where you may not have to budget for electricity anymore, which is would be awesome if it just it becomes all renewable. I think Nikola Tesla is going to reincarnate and <laughs> figure out how to make AC like the universal component. Just everybody's running off alternate current. <laughs> but, uh, um, okay, so we talked about wind energy briefly. I, I think now we can start talking about some of the alternatives that are coming up compared to a lot of these you know, emerging technologies. Uh, wind energy has kind of been a big thing in the last several years uh, using turbines in you know, wind farms, so to speak. What are the components to that, and uh, why, why is that being such a sub after? I like wind a lot. Um, you know, it's low cost. You can build a wind farm, you know, just about anywhere, as long as you have the proper wind flow. Um, I think, you know, it has no emissions, obviously. Yeah, but there's a lot of opportunity in wind, though, right? So you go up, you set a bunch of, like, wind farm up, right? A bunch of little turbines, and they're all generating, right? So besides just, like, regular maintenance costs and then the tra- cost of transportating, transporting that energy from one place to another, right? And you have a little bit of energy loss along the way. It seems like wind has very little downside, right? Yeah, there's definitely there. a little nimbyism to them, not in my backyard, because no one wants a wind farm <laughs> yeah. in their backyard. But, you know... With new materials, with new products that we make, you know, offshore wind farms could potentially be a very real thing. The biggest problem they have right now is saltwater corrosion maintenance makes it a little more costly. But onshore wind right now can compete as far as, you know, price-wise with coal for producing electricity right now. And they have some subsidies going on, but, you know, here in a couple of years, I think they're going to be very, very competitive. And the the only problem with that is the intermittency. You know, you have the... uh, you know, if the wind's not blowing, you're not getting any electricity, but people are still demanding it. So how do you figure that out? How do you cover that? You have to put a coal plant in or some kind of plant to make up for that gap. And what happens is when the wind's not blowing one day, you still have high demand, you have to power on that coal plant, turn it up high, and get it going fast. And that uses a lot of energy to get it running like that. And, you know, there I've seen a few studies where they had a big wind farm and then they had a couple coal plants that were kind of backup and they actually ended up polluting more than if they had just run the coal plants because they were having to constantly rev up those coal plants in order to meet the demand. Wow. And that was a big problem. So, you know, it's something you might not think about. I I think it's something we'll be able to overcome and figure out. 
it's going to come back to batteries, but it's still a it's still a big problem. Okay, yeah. So, uh, okay, ocean wave energy and hydroelectric. As far as hydroelectric goes, I know U.S. is the second largest producer of hydroelectric energy in the U.S. I like it a lot. Um, the problem is you can't expand it as easily as you can wind because you know there's a limited amount of rivers. You can only build so many dams and. You also have to live with the, uh, the ecological damage that you're going to do when you do build that dam. Well, but so one of the more notable situations regarding uh, hydroelectric in, uh, in terms of building a dam was the uh, in China, the Three Gorges Dam. They were talking about having to evict an entire, like... Uh, yeah, it was a very small city. It was a village. It was a village, yeah. A very large yeah. village, actually. So, um, small city. But so they were planning to evict them and, like flood this entire valley to build the Three Gorges Dam. It would have been the largest dam of its size. Yeah, like, in it was going to be like setting a historical record, I believe. And uh, the, the bigger problem is the ecological impact. It would have killed just about everything that ever lived there. And that's, that's the thing you have to weigh, you know. Environmentalists, we want clean energy, we want green energy, but you know, the ethics what's the, the price? Yeah. I, I, ethically, I don't think it was a very smart move for them to even, you know, post that idea. It was a cool theory. Um, I think if they had done the Three Gorges Dam, we probably would have seen the uh, start of what could have been the outcome of 2012, the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Spaceships being built inside of it. Well, that's a Hoover Dam, right? So we've, that's already going on. Just no, 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 no. Hoover Dam's got a Megatron in it. Yeah, oh, that's right. Transformers. <laughs> you can forget about Jesus, Michael Bay. Well, so hydroelectric... <laughs> Hydroelectric's been around for a few decades. It's been around for it, a while. It's been a pretty decent proof of concept, but I don't think it's very effective. Uh, I think one of the more prevalent technologies in our society is uh, been batteries. And right. they're so, small, they're relatively efficient, they don't hold the charge for too long under certain loads. Um, but clearly batteries do run out, though, and there's a big problem with them not, uh, losing their charge over time, right? Yeah. So with, with, so with current lithium-ion uh, technology, there are very evident limitations. Like, just look at your iPhone, for example. Like, there's... Uh, over time, you have to, you know, eventually take it apart, put a new battery in, or just get an entirely new device. Well, so even uh, going back to alkaline batteries, they still have a very long shelf life, but a very short uh, functional life yes. span. And then on top of that, the ecological impact of them has been fairly negative. Uh, disposing of them properly is fairly costly. And I, I, there's been a number of improvements in the process for how to go about doing that. I think our recycling capability has gone better, but th there's still people that just cause them out in the trash and they just end up in landfills. Right, and that's obviously detrimental. So yeah, so battery technology is, is, is going to get innovative just one way or another. Because, like, it's going to be pure consumer demand, which is going to drive supply. And well, it was kind of cool whenever they came up with rechargeable alkaline batteries. Yes, um, that was cool. But the only problem is that they charge so slowly. Yeah, it, and that's why nobody used them. Yeah, just over time, even though the supply was there, the demand just wasn't. Yeah, so just more economic concerns in that regard. There's a solution looking for a problem that was technically a problem already, but well, what what seems interesting to me though is that uh, because people demand more and more batteries because we have more and more devices and more and more needs for them, right? Uh, Lithium-ion looks like it's it's kind of the standard right now, right? It seems like most devices run off some sort of lithium-ion, but. In the future, they're already trying to innovate with things like lithium air, which is going to be much lighter weight, but also have a much higher uh, charge capacity to kind of offset that. And it would be much more um, other kind of battery incentives along the way. Well, so one of the things about lithium ion is that it basically is a electrolytic cell. And the problem is that cell eventually breaks down. And that's what leads to your uh, deficiencies uh, over time. But the bigger problem is that the cell itself can degrade to the point where it can superheat and explode. <laughs> And there have... Uh, that kid in the movie theater, you, Well, yeah. you remember back whenever the iPhone... I think the iPhone or the iPhone 2 came out, and people reported that uh, on flights it was basically superheating and burning them. 
Yeah, actually, I do vaguely remember that. Um, that that was a uh, that was an oversight on the battery technology for it. But I mean, it, that, that's one of the byproducts of it. Is like it's so susceptible to environmental factors and a whole bunch of other things that it, it's a temperamental technology. But it's getting it's gotten a lot better over the last several years. Yeah, I, I think that will only continue to exponentially grow too, especially as. Like I said, the demand's there, and then we just continue to research it. I mean, you know, Tesla's going to be really focused on that, too, because they're, the, the biggest drawback I see when people are talking about buying a Tesla and owning one is that, I'm not sure the actual date, but after a certain number of years, you have to replace the battery on your Tesla because, you yeah, know... It's pretty expensive. Just and, and so the question you have to ask yourself is, would I rather get a luxury vehicle that's maybe uh, $50,000 instead of $60,000 plus a 10000 new battery? $10,000 new battery. So, I mean, right well, now it might be cheaper to just use gas and use a regular car than Well, over the life of the vehicle, actually, you're not having to spend that money on, you know, engine maintenance and having That's to true. re-up your exhaust and all that stuff. I mean, it, there's a whole bunch of money invested in it, uh, just updating the engine components and keeping that running that I think over time, you know, by that eight-year mark, you'll probably get that $10,000 out of it. By then, I'd the technology be, I'd will be interested be to see, you know, a study here in a couple of years of seeing, you know, because I remember back when the Prius and all those other hybrids were first coming out, people were very excited for them, you know, understandably. But if you actually looked at the cost of owning the Prius over a number of years, it would be cheaper to just own a fuel car. Now, obviously... You can't have that self-indulgent, I feel good about myself because I'm helping the environment. <laughs> but, you know, well, for from, all an, you from know. an economic perspective... Any good Prius owner, From an economic on. perspective, it wasn't the smart thing to do. And, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, economics are going to drive what happens as far as hydrogen, electric, gas, all that stuff. Yeah, but, I mean, at least you got the conversation started. No, no, it's... I, I really... I like electric vehicles. I like hydrogen, even though I am in the oil and gas industry. I think they are very interesting... And we'll see what happens. You know, it's, it's, you, you never know. So, yeah, so kind of as a, like, a more or less one of our final points, modifying the infrastructure. So, we, so we, we've seen an yeah. evolution of people's thinking and mentalities regarding, you know, uh, resourcefulness and kind of making everything a little bit more efficient and not, not killing the planet off for yeah, a day. It, and, yeah. What most people call like a green revolution. Uh, it started with uh, energy efficiency in the home. It extended into, you know, devices and vehicles and all that stuff. I, I think a lot of people's mentalities are changing. Um, big oil is still kind of a personality in that space. And I think that's kind of like driving a whole lot of opinions. Like there's a lot of money tied into it. And so yes. therefore there's a lot of, you know, weight thrown around regarding, you know, bullying some of these other technologies. Tesla got bullied beyond what I think anyone else should have yeah, at the but time. They're clever and they actually survived. So well, yeah, I mean, more, they, more power to them. They yeah. had a viable product. Right. And I think a lot of people took notice, um, which is kind of cool. Actually, uh, there's been a number of renovation uh, improvements with some of the more established buildings. Um, so I learned over my trip this past week uh, to New York that New York City, their biggest, actually any city's major uh, energy deficiencies lie in their buildings and their uh, their physical infrastructure. And the Empire State Building recently had to go through a series of uh, renovations. And so they decided that instead of, you know, going back and replacing all the windows with more energy-efficient windows and having to go back and rebuild their entire cooling system or whatever, they decided to reuse as much of that as physically possible. So what they did was they actually uh, they removed all 6,500-some-odd panes of glass and then coated them with a UV-protective film 
of some sort, and it was also thermally... I forget what the exact uh, details of that were, but anyway, so they coded that in-house, and then reinstalled them, and then also reinforced uh, and re-insulated the uh, window panels that mounted the outside of it, and actually improved the efficiency of the building by, I think, like 60%. That's pretty impressive. The, the building was built back in the 1930s, and to see an improvement of that magnitude is impressive. Yeah, uh, What they also ended up doing was they uh, updated the internal cooling system. So they don't actually use air-based cooling. What they actually use is a series of uh, uh, a water filtration system of some sort. And what it does is it basically transmits uh, or transfers cool water to parts of the building that need it and then use that as an ambient temperature uh, regulation system. Wow. And it actually works really well. The building is incredibly, like, it's very livable. Uh, you can definitely sustain it there. Another thing that they've improved is the uh, use of um, sunlight throughout the day. So what they end up doing is they actually, uh, they took a cost evaluation of, you know, eliminating light usage throughout the building during, you know, peak hours, usually in the morning through early afternoon. And then by the time the sun starts setting, they actually move over into uh, light-based use. So they removed a lot of the problems, which is, you know, continuous light usage, uh, continuous AC, and all that stuff, and then improving the uh, energy capacitance of the building in terms of storage and resisting outside heat sources or cool sources, and have basically brought it down to a science. And what they're trying to do is create a model that other buildings can thus emulate. Wow. I'm, that's actually a lot of incentive. So it cost them, I think, uh, $3 million to do the renovations. No, it's $5 million, I think. And then they recoup that in about three years. Wow. Because uh, every year, I don't remember how much it cost well, them. Well, it probably cut down their energy consumption. It cut yeah. down their energy consumption. And then on yeah. top of that, they were saving $400 million a year in energy resources. Oh. Wow. So, yeah, my figures are totally off. But I do remember the $400 million. They recouped that in about three years. Jeez. That, that's one of the things that I think a lot of people kind of have problems with is, like, they see the Green Revolution, and it's like, it sounds really cool on paper, but then they see how much it costs up front, and it's like, they don't keep in mind the long-term benefits right. to, you know, it's not so much an energy efficiency, it's also an economical efficiency. Yeah, and then over time, it will speak for itself. Absolutely. I think people are, yeah. things like the Empire State Building, I think, are a testament to that. I think a lot of businesses are going to start moving in that direction. Uh, a lot of the home market building infrastructure is actually going to move that direction, and I, I really think a lot of green practices are going to start winning out in the long run. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. I'm optimistic. I do have one thing to say about efficiency. Um, we, In one of my classes this year, efficiency was a big topic because it's what everyone is pushing for. It's the buzzword, you might say. Everyone wants more efficient cars, more efficient buildings, et cetera, et cetera. But there's also a problem with efficiency, which might seem a little silly, but if something becomes more efficient, it's easier to use. You're more inclined to use it. So, for example, when refrigeration came out, Back in the 19, um, what, 30s or 40s, maybe? 1920s? Somewhere around, somewhere around yeah, there. 20s, yeah, 20s. Yeah, some, back in the day, everyone thought, well, it's very expensive, it's hard to use, not many people used it. But as it's become cheaper and more efficient, we're seeing increased use of it than we did before, and we actually use a lot, lot more refrigeration than we did back then. People got tired of getting crushed by ice blocks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when, when you make something more efficient, when you make a car more efficient, you have to keep in mind that that increased efficiency might cause the person to consume more than if they didn't have that efficiency. Because if I have a car that can, you know, get 300 miles to the gallon, then I might be more inclined to drive across the country or go somewhere where I might not have been if it was not quite as efficient. So, you know, efficiency, I think, overall is definitely a good thing, but it can have unforeseen negative consequences because people will start to consume something that they can afford much more. 
something to keep in mind. Because, you know, imagine if, you know, everyone in India and China all of a sudden could afford, you know, to drive on very cheap, you know, efficient cars. We might see more pollution than we do now, even though our cars right now are less efficient. Something to keep in mind. Real food for thought. Yeah, so, so any final words? Like, is that more or less the episode? <laughs> But, uh, uh, yeah, would you like a time moments? I think that's our main things. Uh, Ty, if you got anything you want to plug? Um, yeah, I really don't. I like Reddit. So if you like Reddit, get on there, too, and let's have a good time. Yeah, and we might as well use this moment to say we have a wonderful r monkey suit subreddit that has now been created. Or the monkey suit. That's a subreddit. Yeah, so go on there. We have all the episodes loaded up, uh, in addition to iTunes and our normal ways of doing it. Yeah. So, yeah, feel free to let us know what you think also. Go on Twitter, follow us at MonkeySuitPod. Let us know what's going on and leave comments for sure. That's our episode. Bye, guys. Bye.